Welcome to Made for Profit, a podcast where we talk business in the shop and help you monetize as a maker. Each week we cover business topics to help you grow your full-time business or your side hustle. We'll also bring you interviews from a variety of people winning in their space to share valuable business insights and life lessons. I'm Brad Rodriguez, a full-time content creator running FixThisBuildThat.com, and my co-host John Malecki runs a full-time furniture company and his content site, JohnMalecki.com. We've been growing our successful businesses online, and we want to bring you into the conversation and help you grow along with us. Welcome to episode 49. Today, we're finishing the trifecta of interviews with the Modern Maker podcast hosts. We're talking with Chris Salamone from Four Eyes Furniture, and Chris talks with us about working the side hustle with a full-time job and two young kids and why he stopped doing custom furniture commissions. He also goes into how he's built an amazing tribe on Patreon that supports his work. With only 62 video posts and over 9 million views, Chris has accumulated 235,000 YouTube subscribers. He also has an amazing tribe of nearly 750 patrons on Patreon, and in our opinion, is one of the best storytellers in the maker community. Absolutely, man. We're excited to give you guys this interview, but before we do, we wanted to thank some folks that joined the Patreon tribe over there. We had Justin Keel. Joshua Tito Wilson and Paul Pest. Thank you guys so much for joining the tribe. If you'd like to be part of that, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit and enjoy the after show as well as some other perks. But without further ado, here's our interview with Chris Salamone. All right, guys, we are here with our second part of the Modern Maker podcast interview series, I guess is what we'll call it. Uh, but we are with the third and final part of Modern Makers. We've had Ben and Mike, and now we have the pleasure of having Chris Salamone on Made for Profit. Chris, welcome, my man. Good to be here. How's it going, guys? Doing great, man. It's warm. I'm very warm over here. My, my shop has no AC right now, Chris, so I am just profusely sweating. Yeah, me too. You just you keep should, saying that. I'm taking my jacket off. You should just be I glad I, you, you can only see from the chest up on the podcast. <laughs> it's just all sweaty. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we are in full summer podcast mode. I've kind of forgot how this was because it was like this last, and John, when John was recording in his house, it was even worse. But uh, <laughs> like I'm in my little office and, you know, I've got all this equipment going, right? And so like we've got the router in here and everything. And yes, I'm just sweating. With the door closed because my family is right outside the door. So other than that, we're doing great, Chris. So, and by the way, congratulations uh, for the newest member of your family over there and having a little auto and having uh, new, new kids. I'm sure that's fun. So you're actually on paternity leave, right? I'm on, yeah, partial paternity leave. So partial. Yeah. People know, or people who've listened to my podcast know that I still work full time, but now I'm working like two thirds time, I guess, for a couple of weeks. That that's the best way to go, you know. Take advantage of the kid. Like you got to play that card. Like, I know. You've got I just the card, gotta you've got to keep play getting it. one out every nine months. Then I'll just keep that paternity <laughs> rolling, man. I gotta get a few more wives. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, as I was gonna say, you might you might need to do that because I, I don't know if if uh, my wife or any wife would be up for that <laughs> constant state of pregnancy. Um, anyway, so things, get things it. I just don't even deal with. All right. That's right. John, you, you need some perspective, but you know, you, you'll get there one day. Uh, so yeah. So, so Chris, obviously four eyes furniture and the modern maker podcast. So folks, most of our listeners uh, know you, but what we like to, to start off with is just a little backstory. And if you can give us kind of the, the five minute overview of, of how you got started in, for us furniture, you know what that obviously your, your content and YouTube now, but you've also done the commission. So I think that's going to be a, 
a cool part that we're going to want to explore here on the episode as well, because a lot of our audience uh, are product and they don't necessarily do content, but they might have that interest. So I, I'm sure you, you've got some perspective there. So why don't you give us the the overview of of how you got started in Four Eyes Furniture and, and kind of what you're doing right now. And, and obviously this is the side hustle still. So that's also cool. Yeah. So for me, I guess it started when my wife and I, we had we were just about to get married and we were looking for houses and like looked at like 50 houses. And once we were starting to like really consider which ones we were going to buy, I was getting into 3D modeling at that time. And I would just like model out the houses and like come up with ideas for things that we could do to change them, to make it the way that we liked it, all that kind of stuff. This was, so this was before I was ever into like woodworking, never even cut a piece of wood. I found SketchUp and I just started drawing a bunch. And after a few weeks of doing that, I was just like, Hey, I wonder if I could design a piece of furniture. So I just started looking at pieces of furniture, like, you know, on the web or things that I saw laying around and just kind of rebuilding them in SketchUp. And that kind of got me to like, learn the, learn the way that it worked, learn the way that furniture went together more or less. Cause before that, you know, I would have just thought like, I don't know, it's just like a big log that you just chisel away the negative space that you don't <laughs> want. Or like, you know, I had no idea about like joinery or anything. So <laughs> that kind of taught me that aspect of it. And so then I started doing that for, I probably spent like a year doing that, just like drawing pieces wow. of furniture. And then I was like, I wonder if I could actually like make some of these things that I'm designing. So I found a local community college that had a woodworking program. They had night classes. And so I enrolled in a night class. And the first class we had to build a project that the instructor created. It was just like little cabinet. And it just, it basically taught you how to use the power tools, uh, different types of joinery, like, you know, probably five different types of joinery, something like that. It's basic techniques. Took that one, liked it. And then in the next semester, they had a night class where it was pretty much just open shop time where you could build whatever you want, something that you designed, something that you found a plan for. And the instructor would be there to kind of help you as needed. So I basically had access to this like huge shop that's you know way better than the stuff that I have even now, um, three months into it. And I could just go there two times a week for three hours at a time and build something. So I designed a coffee table. Actually, it's a coffee table that I have on my channel now, the spider coffee table. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that video, I kind of tell the story of that. But I designed that and it came out good enough that like gave me the confidence that it was like, okay, I really do love doing this and I want to get deeper into it. So after that, pretty much converted the garage to a shop, started buying a bunch of equipment, um, just kind of started building things. And I, I think even at that time, I knew that I wanted to start selling things if for anything, just as a way to like make up the money that I had invested in all of the machinery to kind of like justify that, okay, I didn't just like plunk down. for nothing or whatever. Mm. So that kind of naturally led into me selling furniture, probably like probably about nine months after I had um, gotten the shop all set up. Uh, Just kind of went from there, did that for a couple years, Um, enjoyed it a lot at first, but after a while it got kind of wearing just because I wanted to be building new things. Like I kept having new ideas that I wanted to try out, but I didn't really have time because of working full time. And then in my in my free time, having to like build the same piece over and over essentially because people wanted what they saw on my website. Um, And then that's what kind of transitioned me after maybe three or three and a half years or so of doing that to say, I want to try the YouTube thing out. I had been wanting to for a long time, but just didn't have the time. But then I was like, okay, I'm just going to take the plunge. I'm going to finish up the the commission builds that I've agreed to and try out the YouTube thing. Nice. And when did you when did you launch your YouTube channel? Was that early 2016? Yeah, it would have been like 15 March 2016. So it's been just over two years. 
Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. And and so, and I think that you know a, a huge unspoken piece that you didn't hit on is is your background design. So how, you know, what what does that look like? I know you're you're a graphic designer, right? So. Yeah, what does your, your design chops look like? So I've always been into graphic design, just like, I don't know, from when I was a little kid and got my first pirated copy of Photoshop. I just kind of started <laughs> playing around with it and liked it. Brad um, still uses that same pirated copy. <laughs> so you guys know. CS1 or I don't even know what it would be. <laughs> they probably didn't even call them that then. Um, but no, yeah, I, I was always just kind of like into that or into like drawing and stuff when I was little, just for fun. Um, as far as furniture design, I had no history with that until I found SketchUp, but I've always just kind of liked creative things and, um, kind of mathematical things. And I think that when I found woodworking, it was like the perfect marriage of those two kind of, you know, aesthetic and engineering slash mathematical for lack of a better term. I don't know. It just like really appealed to me. Gotcha. And what's your, uh, what is your schooling in? Uh, my degrees in business and economics and then, as part of that, when you get a business degree, part of that is marketing. So I ended up getting a marketing position, but the way that I got that was kind of through graphic design. So it was, it was basically, it was a job that was kind of like part marketing, part graphic design. Like you had to be a a sort of one-stop shop for what they were looking for. So I had the business degree already. I put together a portfolio of like stuff that I'd just done either in my free time or kind of pro bono stuff and, and got that job and got into that probably like four years ago. Gotcha. And then, and then, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me, although that's, it's, I would have expected you to have something like more in the, in the arts field actually, which is even more impressive because it's basically, you know, just shows how much, you know, innate design DNA you have, right? Like that you don't even necessarily have schooling. Like you don't have a graphics art degree. You've got business, but you've been able to do this. So that that's really awesome because I think that, you know, one of the things that when when I first saw your channel, the thing, you know, not just from uh, the storytelling, those things, which we'll get into, but was the design and the new looks and the uniqueness that was like, whoa, you know, and I think that a lot of the first things that people saw was like the Bad Larry design. Yeah. And is that a mini Bad Larry behind you on yes. the shelf? Yeah. A lady That's from fantastic. Australia, she makes miniature furniture and she she sent it to me. Sorry, I was talking backwards. I don't know if that missed the mic, but yeah, a lady from Australia sent it to me a couple months ago. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that was, uh, there's, there's for the listeners, there's a little itty, but he's, he's got a, a shelf in the background behind him and there's a little bad Larry on there. I was like, Hey, what? <laughs> that looks like bad Larry. Yep. So yeah, the, the design pieces, I think, you know, that you, you've got such a, a great eye for design and just being able to um, take things and, and have a, a very unique look on it. And I think that's, that's really awesome. And we'll, we'll dive deeper into that, but I'm sure that's what, um, you know, probably was, was driving your product business too, is just the uniqueness because people haven't seen those designs before. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, that was something that I always wanted to do, not only when I was selling furniture, but also coming to YouTube. I just always think like, well, what can I do different? Because, you know, if I just look at it from a, a craftsman point of view, like I'm not going to be the best craftsman out there or the best on YouTube or anywhere else. So I think the place that I can kind of separate myself is in the ideas and just like coming up with unique designs. So that's why I put a lot of emphasis in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, go I, ahead, John. I gotta say someone coming from, uh, I guess like kind of a similar story in that I didn't really have experience with furniture or with YouTube getting into the content creation stuff, but, mm-hmm. uh, more being like self-taught style, 
um, right. or self-taught design. Um, I was super intrigued by just the look of everything you were making and how you were putting like these geometric shapes into interesting form and, and, and creating um, like, you know, standard everyday living type furniture and just mm-hmm. adding subtle nods to certain aspects of it and making them like super unique. Um, I know in selling furniture, you know, those are the things that make it, you know, stay over the top for your clients, you know, that you're, right. you're one of a kind or, you know, this is a custom design specifically for you. You're not going to find this at West Elm or you're not going to find it at another store, box right. store. But uh, so like um, getting into the design stuff, you know, how did that help the furniture sell side of the business? Because I think that um, it's interesting to see where you're at now, where you've been and how short of a period of time it's been. Because it, I would have thought you'd been doing this stuff for 10 years um, based on the quality of your work. And it's I'm blown away to hear it's only been, you know, five or so. Um, yeah, I think. I think the way that it helped with the furniture selling side of things was the bulk of the people who found me and commissioned pieces came from a few um, features that I got on different design blogs. So the biggest one would have been Design Milk. Mm. And so obviously having a unique look and, and something different that they can share with their audience, you know, it's kind of like doing their job for them. We're like, oh, this is awesome. Like this guy just pitched us these pieces. He already told us his backstory. They're a little bit different looking than other things we featured. We'll feature this. So I got a feature on Design Milk. And then after that, like pretty much all the leads seemed to come from people who found me there. So without that aspect of it, I probably would never have gotten that feature and in turn would not have had all those people discover me. Nice. So, so as you do that, because I, I really like the the kind of vein of this conversation, uh, especially for our creatives out there. Mm-hmm. As as you got into that, and as you are so into the design, did did you try to bridge that gap of saying like you got tired? Like people, we hear that a lot. Like uh, people get tired of making the same thing, yeah. even though they they loved it. But then it's like, okay, after you've made your fifth one or your tenth one, that you're like, I, I want to do something else. Did you did you try to to stay in the production for other people, but then make new designs and then try to work with people to commission designs and give that, like, did you try to go down that road and stay in the production side of it? I mean, I think my goal at that time probably would have been to eventually get it to the point where all I was doing was designing and all of the production was happening elsewhere. You know, I would still produce like prototypes and things like that to, to work out the design. But, um, for me, it was just really a matter of like, there was no time because I was working full time. You know, I, I was probably maxing out at that point of maybe like not, not even two pieces a month that I could complete. So just call it like a piece and a half a month. I was kind of like capped out there and I was turning down work a little bit, but there wasn't enough for me to justify going full time. So I was kind of like in this uh, like purgatory, I guess, of like yeah, sure. enough. Trainer. Yeah, exactly. There was enough that it kept me too busy to explore new things, but not enough to let me go full time. And, you know, if I could have gone full time, then it would have opened up time for me to explore those other things. So it was just kind of like, I'm kind of stuck in this situation. And I was there for probably like a year and a half. And I was just like, okay, I'm getting kind of burnt out of this. I would occasionally get the client that would be like, hey, I saw your stuff and I loved it. And could you design me something like this? And they would give me like pretty free reign. So those were the times that I got to experiment with new things. And like, I always poured way more into that than the other ones because I was like taking advantage of those opportunities. Like, oh, now I can actually get paid to do the thing I want to do of, you know, coming up with new ideas. 
So I probably gave those clients like more than they paid for just because I saw it as something that was beneficial to myself as well. Um, and I guess probably if anything, going through those situations further drove me to want to do the YouTube thing so that I could, every project could be like that where I'm exploring new ideas. Yeah. I'm like feeling a similar thing now being that I've been doing custom work for like five years or so. It's that uh, mm-hmm. uh, I have like an inkling to learn new techniques or use new materials or try new things. And it's so hard when you're doing custom work uh, yeah. to carve out time to work on new stuff. And my whole you know, career in woodworking and, and furniture making has been basically just trying new stuff. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I want to do reclaimed wood. I learned how to use that. You know, you want to get into do a little more bandsaw work. You use your bandsaw. You want to learn to use metal. You learn to weld. Like from where I'm at, I'm like, crap, I, unless I can put this on a client, I literally can't justify the time. Yep. Um, so I, the trade-off for custom work to, to, to create creative, I guess, uh, freedom, um, is something that is like, you've got to be ready to sacrifice, right? When you're in that world, like you have to be willing to realize that you work for the client, you work for the customer. You're not able to just go and do crazy stuff or you'd be an artist. And that's a much more difficult path to selling your work. Um, and you know, and, and in that, I think you touched on it briefly on one of your most recent pieces, right? I think you did a, uh, uh, kind of a console or like yeah, a the shelf record. console. Yeah. 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 The failure one. Yeah. Where you're talking yeah. about that was for a client, right? It was. Yeah, it was going to be. And, uh, and like, <laughs> and, and in that you see the time suck for the client's aspect of that job compared to full blown creativity and being, mm-hmm. you know, an, an artist or just a maker or whatever it might be. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize this till they go full time. And then you're all in on making things for clients instead of for portfolio builders. And you're like, you're like, I haven't been able to do anything creative in a year and a half. And I've had this idea and it's just been sitting there. Um, Yeah. Like, so why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, that segue, excuse me, that move from client stuff into just straight, um, I guess, creative. Yeah. So one of the things actually, it kind of jogged my memory. and, And while you were talking was, I remember towards the end of it, Um, I was turning down a lot more work than I was actually taking on just because it was like, I knew I had a limited amount of things I could take on. And so I would turn down the ones that I thought were boring. Like that's usually what I was turning it down based off of more than like the money that I could make or or anything else. It was just like, uh, this one doesn't excite me as much. I'll, I'll turn that one down and I'll take this one. And doing that, I think more than anything, probably solidified like okay i need to like switch up what i'm doing and do something where i have more control over the things that i'm building and like now the thing that i love about youtube is like you can just transition from big project to small project to back to a big project and i find like that's the flow that i kind of naturally get into where it just keeps me the most sane where it's like okay i've worked on this big one that i've like been all in on for two weeks in a row I want to just like go knock something out real quick in the garage in, in two days now. And, you know, those are things that I would never have had the opportunity to build for a client because no client would ever request something like that for me. So yeah, just like being in that situation where it it was just obvious that, okay, I want to be building other things. I need to look at this YouTube thing. And also I think the thing that excited me about YouTube because I was in the situation that I was in was I knew the only way I'm going to like make more money and ever turn this into a full-time job. If I'm building furniture is I just have to work twice as much to make twice as much money because you know, time is 
I was never going to get to the point where somebody's going to say, well, I'll pay you twice as much now because you've been doing this for two years. Like, right. you know, people don't care about that. All they care about <laughs> is what they're getting. Yeah. But you actually have the opportunity to get like some exponential growth as a content creator. So yeah, I think that's leverage. another thing that pushed me. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one part of going into business for yourself and going full time that a lot of us are willing to sacrifice are that happiness or mind or mindset of like why you got started on things. All of us see opportunity and you're like, I'll just work until I literally can't work anymore. Um, mm -hmm. When you <laughs> when you're supposed to get into business for yourself to work less and build a business. Oh, yeah. So like, <laughs> but all of us tend to, you know, you start throwing more and more on your own plate. Um, and I, I know I can easily see how working a full-time job, um, producing a YouTube channel and doing custom work could be something that you would, I mean, you would have no time for anything else. Um, yeah. and with that, a lot of people want to jump into working full-time. I mean, when, I mean, and you don't work full-time. So, I mean, excuse me for your channel, your full-time job is outside of your YouTube channel. I mean, what's, um, so what factors have like played into that? Cause I find that extremely interesting. Um, as far as, you know, where most of us are in, in the content creator space. Yeah, it's funny. So when I first started the channel, obviously I had no idea what was going to happen. Like I'd actually resigned myself to like, okay, for the first year, I'm probably going to be making videos that like 200 people are going to watch and I'll be fine with that. Like as long as I'm just like making cool things that I'm happy about, eventually something will catch and, mm -hmm. and it'll take off. Uh, luckily, it kind of took off a little bit quicker than that. And I, you know, I was already like finding some early success with the videos that I was putting out. But um, yeah, I mean like when, so when I first started, I was probably putting out a video like every five to six weeks, I would say. And it's weird that it's not like I have more time now. I probably have less time now, but like, as you start getting a little bit of success and you can see some momentum there, it just like makes you want to do more and more and just pile more and more on your plate. And I feel like right now I've actually like earlier this year, my wife and I were talking about it, that I feel like I've kind of hit the maximum capacity for what I can take on. And in fact, I think maybe I've taken on a little bit too much. Like there've been several months in a row where I've been committing myself to three sponsored videos per month. And I think that schedule is just not sustainable for me long-term, at least while I'm working. And even if I wasn't working, I think that's just like a little bit too much for some somebody like me and the types of things that I want to build. So I'm actually working on kind of scaling it back a little bit moving forward. I'm going to try to cap myself at like two a month. But yeah, it's funny that even though, you know, you don't get any less busy, it's almost you just like naturally want to like start piling more and more on your plate as you get that momentum going. Right. And, and I think one of the things that a lot of people do as well is uh, like when you're trying to you're trying to bridge that gap. So when you're in like, I mean, you're in it right now, man, like yeah. you're 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 in the the pool in between the full time job and the side hustle and, and trying to make that balance swing the other way. Right. It's like the it's like the seesaw and you get the full time income on the one side. And then, you know, it's it's everybody's personal decision into how far you're going to let that teeter before you make the jump. And and some right. people are like, well, hey, I, I've got enough insight. And if I can make half of what I do in my full time job, but uh, I can see the runway to get there eventually, or I'm just going to change my lifestyle, you know, and, and downgrade and we can we can get through this. Or some people say, you know, I want to completely replace it before I go that you're, you're in that tension right now. And I think that that is the time that you tend to take on the most. I know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I did as I was going, but it's also the time when you have the least. So it's yeah. this really odd, 
you know, this odd interaction between those two of like really trying to grind. And I know that, uh, you know, a lot of that sacrifice comes in your own personal self, you know, self care and well being and your hobbies and like, we know what you're doing and yeah. your sleep and, and, and all that. And especially with, with new kids, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can imagine that, uh, your sleep is, is probably somewhere in the background to all your other things on your plate right now. Yeah. Well, it's, um, so Brad, I think that you were kind of in a similar situation, right? Cause when you went full time, wasn't it when your wife went back to work? Yeah, exactly. So, so that's kind of the situation that I'm in right now. And actually on a side note, so one thing I always like to say, cause I'll get asked a lot, people ask like, oh, is that like you work full-time and then you do this part-time, but it's actually kind of like, no, they're both basically full-time jobs at this point. Exactly. So it's essentially two <laughs> full-time jobs. But yeah, so my, we had a kid, we have a kid that just turned five and then we had our second son was born two months ago. And my wife had a really high stress, a high power, stressful job basically for the last five years. And she had always wanted to, or our plan was always that at some point she would quit work and be a full-time mom for a while, or not that she wasn't a full-time mom at the time, kind of like, you know, the two full-time jobs thing, but be just a mom for a while. Um, and so when we had the second kid, that was the plan that she would quit work. Um, you know, luckily the YouTube thing was building. I was still working. We have all the insurance and everything through my work, so we could swing it. But it's kind of like we're at a point right now where if if she wasn't doing that, like if she wanted to keep working, I probably would quit work right now and just do this. But it just seems like a little bit too much of a risk for neither of us to have a traditional job with insurance and you know, with the, all the uncertainty and having two kids now. And it just seems like a weird time to do it. So I think for me, I'll pro- I know that someday I'm going to take the leap and do this. It's just a matter of when, not if. But um, yeah, for me, it's either like something so great happened that I couldn't afford not to go full-time doing this. Or right. maybe a few years goes by and she's like, you know, I'm ready to go back to work now. Then I'll say, let's put in those applications and I'm resigning. <laughs> yeah, you're I'll like, be ready I- to go. <laughs> I know a great guy who can do a CV for you. That's going to be killer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that That's really cool because I think, you know, there's there's so many of our audience out there. They're trying to figure that out and they're trying. They've got this passion, whether it's just making products or it's making content or it's some, you know, some combination of those two and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how it is. And, and I think it's that's really interesting. What you brought up is like everybody's situation is unique and yours is almost kind of the exact opposite of mine. Right. It, it, mm-hmm. it, that and that your wife is just now going away from her job or my wife went back to her job. And then, and then actually my wife is now stepping back away again. So she, she went, you know, she did her year of teaching and now she's coming to work for the business full time because it is, it is going so well. And it's, and I, and I think that, you know, you'll, I I know that you'll see that as well. And you've got all these other endeavors as well that you're, that you're doing as far as not just the YouTube. So you've got all the revenue streams, like the Patreon, I know is huge for you. Yeah. Uh, and now you've got the sponsors. You've also got some of the commission work on the side. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what about the, and I know and I'm not completely up to speed on it, but you were, and you kind of hit on it uh, earlier in the show about just wanting to do the design, about partnering up with uh, the, the company uh, yeah. to make your designs. What's what's the status of that? So that, it, it's pretty much over at this point. It uh, We gave it a shot, didn't quite work out. I. I talked about it a little bit on our podcast and I, I think there's a, a few good lessons that I learned from it. Um, but you know, 
Hey, can it you just a, recap real quick for the audience who might not know okay, what, so, what it is exactly? Okay, so it was a company named Woodcastle had reached out to me a few months ago. They wanted to, they, so they're a company that manufactures furniture that gets sold in other stores. So there's stores like um, Rejuvenations is one. Um, a few I, stores that are like mid-tier stores. So, you know, not higher end than like Ikea and Target and that kind of stuff. But, you know, pieces that would sell for 1200 bucks, something like that, right? They sell in stores like that. Um, and so they wanted to, first off, work with me to like, see if they could put a line together to pitch to one of those stores to be sold in there. And also they wanted to try to actually do direct to consumer for the first time. So, you know, it wasn't much of a risk on my end because basically what, the only work that I had needed to do, I'd already designed the pieces. I just needed to kind of rework them a little bit for shipping purposes, essentially, just to keep shipping costs down. Um, so it wasn't a ton of work from my end. And it, it was a cool opportunity. Uh, we ended up going with three pieces, which but you can actually see all the pieces right now for anybody. If you just go to foureyesfurniture.com, then there's a shop button. You'll be able to see the three pieces. Um, but it was a bench, the bad Larry and uh, kind of like bookcase thing that's based off of the one that you guys can see behind me. Um, so we made those three pieces. We promoted them a little bit on my YouTube channel. And I think what we learned there is that people who watch me on YouTube are not looking to buy furniture. They're looking to make furniture. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it got the word out decently, got a lot of people to look to it, but I don't think it was truly a lot of potential customers. Um and so from there, I tried to push and say like, hey, let's like spruce up the website a little bit because it, it did not have a good web experience. Like you could tell that, you know, they're, they were not outfitted for being a retail site. Um, but I thought they, you know, they could have put a couple hundred bucks into that and, you know, they could have just got a Squarespace page and right. put that together. It would have been a thousand times better. I, I want, I really wanted to do that. And then let's put a little bit of money into like just doing some Facebook or Instagram sponsored posts to go after the people that actually could potentially buy this stuff. But we never did that. And, you know, I suggested it a few times, but my, my hands were tied. There was only so much I could do. Um, so yeah, nothing ever happened. It ended up actually being kind of a success on their end because what happened was through the YouTube video, they got a client come to them where they got to build custom furniture for this whole whole whole, whole hotel. It's a tongue twister. Um, and Guys, that's okay. I thought you were saying a ho hotel, and I was like, whoa, yeah, a brothel. Let's <laughs> let's, let's, let's back lots this of, up. Lots this of is family friendly show, Chris. All, all made by modern builds or the modern build beds. Yeah, that's why he's making so many beds lately. Um, no, but so they they recouped all of the money that they invested in it. Um, I didn't really invest any money into it. It was mostly just my time and and a little bit of promotion, but they pulled the plug on it. So they're basically clearing everything out right now. Most of the furniture is already gone. I think there's a few pieces left that are uh, severely marked down. If anybody wants one, go check yeah. it out right now. So right? If you want a bad Larry yet. <laughs> Those ones are all sold out. I just ordered four benches. <laughs> there you go. $5 a pop. No, they're more than that, but deal. yeah, they're, uh, that's, that's pretty much the, long and short of it. So I don't, I don't know if that's to say that I'll never get an opportunity like this again, or that it can't be done, but the way that we went out, went about it definitely, uh, wasn't a success from my point of view. Yeah. So what, what was the big takeaway? What was your big lesson coming out of that? Cause I think that's really, I mean, I, I, I love that because you could almost corollary that to 
somebody trying to sell their own furniture on mm-hmm. YouTube as well. I mean, because that's probably a very similar thing uh, where a company like if they had workers and they're going out and making videos and saying, oh, well, th- this didn't work and then throwing in the towel. So like what what was your takeaway? What have you what would you have done differently other than, you know, sprucing up the website? What was your big takeaway personally or either just to make it work? I think the big takeaway would have been to not assume that kind of like I was saying before, not assume that the that all audiences are the same. So that YouTube audience that I've built up is just not the key audience for selling furniture to, you know, selling tools and finish and those kinds of things to them. They're probably an ideal audience for that because that's what they want. That's the type of thing they're going to be using, but they're probably not looking at my channel because they want to go buy a piece of furniture. That's not to say some aren't like, I know not every person who watches us has a workshop and is building furniture. Maybe they're just like kind of interested in furniture, seeing the way that things go together. Or maybe they did find it by, you know, a Google image search that turned up when they were looking for modern bookshelf. And then they saw the picture and that led them to the YouTube video. There's certainly going to be some people like that, but it's going to be a really low concentration of people that are looking for that. And you're going to have to look at different avenues for getting yourself out there to be exposed to the people that actually want to buy something. Yeah. I, and I think that's a struggle. That is one thing. And, and, and John and I have talked about it a lot about the kind of the, the content ink methodology, right? About getting content. And I think that that's, you know, defining your audience and building that. And so, and that is the struggle is how do you connect? And so, you know, and, and, and I'm not in that boat, so I don't have enough perspective about it because I am, you know, I'm making educational content versus trying to sell the products. But I know the one, thing that, that John has always brought up uh, is the pool guy and, you know, the mm-hmm. guy who, who has sold a ton of pools by making YouTube videos about like how to maintain pools. And so, you know, right. maybe that that's that takeaway about maybe for people who are who have products, like showing how to make them is maybe not the way to sell your products, but it's those ancillary things about, you know, how to set the dining table, you know, what's a, how to care and maintain for a finish versus right. how to apply the finish. So it's like that back end user type content versus like, here's how you make this table. It's like, well, they don't want to make the table. They want to buy it. Uh, And people who want to make it are not the people who want to buy it. Yeah. And I think there actually could be a difference too, depending on what you're. So if you're selling like super high-end furniture, it's probably more realistic because you don't need to have hundreds of clients. If you're selling that, you just need to get a few clients. And so you, you probably could find those people just through exposure on YouTube. But what we were looking to do was, you know, selling a piece of furniture for 900 bucks and wanting to sell a lot of them. I don't think you're going to get that audience on YouTube. Right. Well, yeah, I think, uh, it, not on your channel, like you said, because you've aggregated right. a bunch of people and you're following that are interested in the story behind your stuff that are interested in what you're building specifically yeah. for that, the, the skills and such, not so much as, you know, Hey, I would love to buy a piece um, from you, you know, so in that, I think that there's still a lot of opportunity to create, you know, YouTube channels around reselling. Um, it's much mm-hmm. more difficult, especially the way content's consumed these days. Um, cause it'll feel like immediate, like a sales pitch and immediately like an ad. Um, so, right. you know, as a piece of advice, I would tread lightly, but, um, I also find it fascinating on your displeasure with all basically a wholesaling model. Like, you know, uh, the other thing you haven't touched on then is like your design there's no way you were getting a hundred percent share on um, the sale of the product. You know, th- there's definitely a cut has to go on the multiple parties and um, right. we get tons of questions on uh, people wondering if they should pursue the wholesale model. And I always 
advocate against it because I think um, on a small scale, you get into quantity over quality and then you end up just trying mm-hmm. to put out a ton of stuff um, to fulfill orders. And like, yeah, the money's there, but you're, you're squeezed by, you know, the economies of scale. Like you only have so much time. You can only produce so much with one person to scale up. You're going to pay to twice as many and, you know, so, so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. in that, I'm, I think that, you know, a lot of the, uh, the, a lot of the ways that big brands are producing furniture nowadays are sourcing overseas. Um, not really doing a lot of local stuff. There are some, um, that do, but you know, if you were to go back and do it again, what would you change from that interaction? Um, because I do think that there's some brands and businesses that listen to this show that want to be in that model. Um, yeah. and you've had some like really, really tangible experience with it. Yeah. So I always say I'm an open book, like when it comes to numbers and money and all that stuff. So I'll, I'll lay it all out. So our deal that we had was, well, first off, so the company they're in America, they use all hardwood, like the stuff was good quality mm-hmm. stuff. I would say, I would argue like, you know, the aesthetics were a little bit different, but taking the aesthetics aside, if you just look at like my bad Larry versus their bad Larry, theirs was actually higher end. It was all hardwood cabinetry. Um, whereas mine is, you know, plywood with hardwood edging and, mm-hmm. and a hardwood base. Um, so I, you know, you could make the argument that theirs was actually higher quality and at a cheaper price because of the economies of scale that they're experiencing with producing it. But our deal was that I would get 10% of the sale. So not profit, but just whatever they sold. So if they sold, you know, a thousand dollars worth of furniture, I would get a hundred dollars, whether their profit was zero or 500. Um, that was the deal that we laid out. I was fine with that initially because I mean, it was no work for me, honestly. It was just like, okay, this can just be an extra stream of income. I have no intentions of selling these things. If they can get it into a line, like as a line into a store, that's going to be a huge audience that I would never sell from. That could be a huge, you know, that could be $5,000 of passive income every month if it really took off. It didn't. Um, So I don't have any like regrets from that side of it. Really the only, and I don't even know if regrets is the right word, but the the only things that I see that I would do different would be like straight off the bat before I signed anything and agreed to it. I would say like, we need to do some promotion elsewhere. Like let's set a budget for doing some promotion elsewhere and like doing some research and finding out what's going to be the best way to do this. I think that they thought, because they don't really have any experience with this either, is they just looked at my YouTube channel and you know they saw oh my god this video has 700,000 views if just 1% of people bought it that'd be i'm not good at math but i think 10 billion sales <laughs> <Next. Close. laughs> seven, 7 billion no. 7 billion there you go, 7 billion no but you know Millions. what i'm saying they just thought like oh that'll be a huge amount of sales and and so they didn't really have the the research or the knowledge to know how that was going to work and like even so far as i could tell that when i was first talking to them I had to explain like, oh, I can't go back and like edit those videos and say that this is for sale now. We can put something in the description, but you know, not that many people even look at the description. So it's not like all of a sudden those 700,000 people who've watched the video are going to get an update and be like, holy crap, this is for sale now. Right, right. They're not going to go back and and watch it either. Right. So it's like, yeah, you've you've got 700,000 views in the bag and that means nothing for the next one or 700,000 views going forward. Right. right? And and that's a really interesting takeaway though, because like you said, I mean, that, that sounds like an amazing deal. Like when you're looking at it from your perspective, it's like, okay, like you're, you're basically licensing out the intellectual property of your design, right. And, and getting royalties off that, which is, which 
is an amazing business opportunity. Like if you've got design chops and you can do that and you can sell, then yeah, because you've got, like you said, you've got no risk, you've got no outlay and they're doing all the work and you're, you, you did all the front end mental work and then built the audience and the, you know, the kind of taste for that design. So yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there, there's definitely legs there. That's a, that's a really cool model. I, it's unfortunate that it didn't work out. You know, what's funny too, is actually to go way back to the beginning of the conversation when I was talking about first getting into designing things. So when I was <clears throat> first modeling on SketchUp, the first piece of furniture that I designed that I really liked was this kind of, well, there was two of them there. So there was this modular bookcase piece and then this modular kind of like room divider bookcase piece that I'd come up with. And I was like, I have no idea how I would actually go about producing these things. Like they would probably have to be, you know, injected plastic molding or something. It's like, I can't get into this. What's a material that I could feasibly work with and start building things from? I was like, oh, wood. That's a lot more approachable. And that was actually how I got into woodworking. Like <laughs> that's how I decided on wood. <laughs> so it's either 3D printing or wood. Let's let's go with wood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I love it. So so Let's let's get into your your channel a little bit and about your delivery because I think that is obviously I mean that's one of the things that that drew John and, and me and and most of your audience I'm going to assume is is not just the design but then once we get into the video is your production mm -hmm. quality and production value is just so high and not and it's it's not just the shooting but also the storytelling behind that and kind of mm -hmm. your your ability uh, your kind of your your deadpan delivery and dry humor yeah. and just being able to tell a story behind it that you're not as instructional, at, but you're more, uh, yeah. you know, you're more entertainment in the sense of like that the storytelling is that again, like when when you went to set up your channel and you went, OK, I'm going to do a YouTube channel. How am I going to convey this message? Did you mm -hmm. just know going in or did you watch other videos and say, well, nobody's doing that. That would be unique. And I a like storytelling. Yeah, kind of a little both. So when I. I had wanted to do it for a while and I was watching a bunch of the YouTubers that were out there that I liked. And I said, okay, I want to do this, but I want to do it like a little bit different than what I'm seeing right now. And, and that didn't be like, okay, no one's telling stories. I'm going to tell stories. For me, it was more like the main thing that I kept seeing was a lot of the, the hyperlapse shots and a lot of camera angles that were kind of like the mid, you know, waist up kind of shot that was like 90% of what I was seeing out there. So I, was, I went into it and I was like, okay, I'm just going to make sure that that's not what my videos are. And so when I filmed my first one, I took like way too many shots. I think, you know, my, like my average video now is probably comprised of 70 different shots. That one was like 250. Cause I was just like, I'm just going to film everything and then I'll figure <laughs> it out when I edit it. So I spent a ton of time, got all the shots and told myself I'll figure it out when I'm editing, got there to edit it. I kind of had like, oh, I want a different type of music than than what most of the videos have. So me and my friend just like made this like weird kind of atmospheric keyboard guitar song that could play in the background, put that to it. It kind of like just like already right there, it just had a different tone. And then as far as the voiceover stuff, I was like, okay, well, I'll talk about what I'm doing. But I, I would always worry that if I just talk about what I'm doing, like, five videos in, am I going to have said everything already and I'll have nothing left to say? So I was like, well, I'll talk about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And, you know, I think with every piece, there's probably some kind of story there. You know, if it's a client build, you could talk about who the client was and, and what they needed and why you decided to do things that you did. You know, if it's for yourself, it's here's what's going on in my life and, and why I decided to build this piece now. And, 
you know, here's what I didn't like about other things. And so I decided to do this because it would be different. You know, who knows? That's very vague, but there's always like something that you can pretty naturally talk about that's, that's going on with why you're building something. So, you know, you don't have to like shoehorn it in there in any way. Um, as far as the deadpan humor, I think that came just because like, I've always been a kind of goofy guy and I, I like comedy, but I know that if you try to like be too over the top with it, it's not going to land with everybody and it'll come off as cheesy. So I wanted to do it in a way that it was like subtle enough that if people do get it, they'll think it's funny. But if you don't get it, like you might not even know that there was a joke there. You just be like, okay, he's <laughs> just, I don't know, he's just talking or whatever. So that was how I kind of came to that approach. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like I kind of, I don't want to make it sound like it was like a master plan that I had going into it of like, this is the way my videos were going to be. It was just, I knew I wanted to do things a little different and just kind of fell into it happening. Like I just kind of happened to find my tone pretty quickly within a couple of videos. I, I think I had kind of found it. Yeah. Cause like when I look at your stuff now versus your, you know, what I, the earlier stuff, like it's very similar. Like there's not been yeah, a lot of, of change. Um, which is good. I mean, in a good way that the consistency and just like, obviously it works and mm-hmm. resonates. So I, I think that's really awesome uh, because, you know, and John and I were talking about it with Mike. I mean, like, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly. And, and, you know, we've, especially with John's channel, John's doing a, a lot of different stuff and seeing what, what resonates and a lot of it's killer, but it's like trying to find that audience that everything resonates with and yeah. the combination of the B roll and the amazing shots versus like the the on-screen persona and voiceover and those things. So it's it, it's a mm-hmm. hard thing to find. So it's really cool that you settled in so quickly because that's that is usually not the the norm. <laughs> yeah, I think I got kind of lucky at it. Um I also knew that I was not good at talking on camera like the way like Mike. I think Mike is great. At, uh, when we started the podcast, the idea was that he would be the host cuz like you're just the most hosty of us. Yes. Like you just Mike have is, that like, Mike over is the very top, hosty. like hey guys, how's it going? Personality. <laughs> <laughs> He's a hostess cupcake. Yeah. Um, yes. yeah, Mike he, is a uh, jabber. You're, you're a counter puncher. Yeah. And yeah, like even if I'm just like talking on camera, camera, I'm like, what am I doing? Like this feels, I just get in my head and like start feeling self-conscious <laughs> about it. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to do that probably. And you know, I'm sure it's like with anything else, if you did want to do that with practice, you would get better at it. But I just kind of naturally shied away from that and put more emphasis in just doing a nice voiceover. Yeah, I think what's interesting is if you um if you listen to any like Gary Vaynerchuk, um his last book, uh he talks a lot about documentation um and how he believes content around documentation is vitally important to any brand. Um that being whether it's Instagram stories or vlogging. Um and I and I I what I really dig about your content is that in context of what it is, you I mean you're actually building things um and you're showing inspiration and somewhat of a tutorial aspect that you're still mm-hmm. winning when a lot of us struggle um, in balancing entertainment versus instruction. Uh, like your titling, for instance, is extremely, it's streamlined across your, your stuff. I mean, design and build, design and build, design and build. And like, right. um, when a lot of people will try, we're, for instance, us, will try to hit on something like Google trends. We talked about that with Mike. Um, mm-hmm. how important do you think it is staying to the brand has been at developing that core audience in which you actually thrive on with your patrons? Cause I mean, that's how, um, you, you, I mean, you thank them in every video and you're always constantly talking about them. Um, I think, mm-hmm. and you could easily go and be like, you DIY credenza and go straight in, you know, 
moving right. to where a lot of people are in the space, um, uh, how, how important do you think it is that you've stayed true to what you do and really built a core, core hub of, uh, of followers or a tribe, as we like to call it? I think it's important. It's hard to say how important, but I think the more important thing for me, I guess, is just na- doing what you naturally like. Like Sometimes that gets overlooked for doing what's best is doing what you like, because that's going to give you a lot more longevity and it's going to keep you happier. And I think the audience can kind of see it in the end product that like, oh, this guy enjoys doing the voiceovers. Like sometimes I think like, oh man, if I was just, well, okay. In fact, so when we were doing the dwell videos, me, Ben and Mike, um, which we may start doing those again, but I could produce those videos so much faster because they didn't have the voiceover. You know, it was just like very, like each video would be 20 shots. It was just like straightforward. I'm doing this. Now Mm -hmm. I'm doing this. Now I'm doing this. And I was like, oh my God, I can bust these things out in like half the time that it takes me to make one of my videos. But I like making the videos the way that I make the other ones. So it's worth it to me to spend that extra time. And like you were saying, I think it does resonate with the audience. And I think it is actually a big reason that Patreon has been so successful for me, not only in, um, you know, making sure that I I thank my patrons and, and that I have good communication with them, but just getting people to sign up initially, I think having that kind of like narrative or or story driven type of video is maybe more appealing to people that would become Patreon supporters. Um, You know, one thing that I like to do with every video, not every video, but say most videos is I like to leave on kind of like a high note. So either a joke or something witty to say, or I like the high point to be like at the end, right before the four eyes logo comes up. And I think that like, I don't know, it's kind of like showmanship, like leave them wanting more or whatever. Um, I got that from Seinfeld. That's where I get all of my uh, life lessons. Uh, Thank you. I'm out. Yeah. You just (laughs) land the joke and you leave no matter what. You've been great. And you just walk away. No, but I like to kind of leave on like that high note because then when that subscribe button comes up or when that watch the next video button comes up or the Patreon button, it's all there. Like right when you just hopefully had like the best feeling of watching the video. So that's kind of the thing that I like to keep most consistent with my videos, I guess. Yeah. I love, I love that you're just like completely bought into providing value to your audience or providing value in that, you know, you're like, you want them to enjoy your video, take something away from it, you know, come into Mm -hmm. the next one on a positive note. Um, maybe get a little thank you or shout out for supporting you. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I, and I think, you know, looking back over the 49 episodes that we've done now for the show, you know, the tribe, the concept of a tribe has been such a core belief for made for profit. Um, and I think Mm -hmm. that with the way you're embodying it via YouTube, um, is, is an attestment to how valuable a tribe can be. I mean, your channel, uh, is, is really taken off and grown and you've stayed like extremely true to what you're doing and developed your brand a little bit over. I mean, humor's getting a little bit better. You know, obviously mm-hmm. you get a little more comfortable in it, your production value, right. your, your segueing into new and, and different types of media and, and different toolings. Um, and you know, you introduced sponsors, for instance, your audience didn't get turned off by it because they're bought into Chris. They're not bought into, uh, you know, right. I want free content in order to learn things. So, when we talk about a tribe, you know, uh, we get um, a lot of people that are looking to grow their own. And I think you've done a perfect example of that. You know, you've stuck to your guns <laughs> from the get go. You had great branding and an, and an idea and you've kind of run with it. 
Um, so like sort of, I'll, I'll give you a tiny violin, uh, and, and mic and clap over here. Cause it, I mean, it's, that's hard to do, dude. It is. I don't think people understand how difficult it is to develop a brand strategy and stick to it for as long as you have. I've bounced around so many times with my own, um, yeah. content channel, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about how you've stayed steady and how you've stayed the course? Cause things pop up. I mean, you can get distracted and deterred. Yeah. No, I think it's natural to want to do that. Like everybody naturally kind of wants to move on to different things, but I, I like to kind of stop and remind myself like, Hey, this is working and I'm enjoying it and people are enjoying it. And like, there's always that siren song of like, yeah, but what if I did this? And like, it just went bananas and I could be somewhere way further ahead than where I would be otherwise in three months. There's that, but you know, what if it didn't work out? So at the end of the day, you choose the thing that you like the most. And like you were talking about with community. So, you know, you get a lot of, uh, backseat quarterbacking, I guess, or Monday morning quarterbacking. I'm mixing my analogies. Uh, (laughs) Monday seat driving. (laughs) You get a lot of that kind of advice from various people on YouTube. And like, I legit will listen to anything that I get from my Patreon community, because I know that those are the people who've bought into what I'm doing and actually care about what I'm doing a lot. And that's not to say that anybody who isn't doesn't. I mean, there are plenty of people that I'm sure do, but like, it's funny. I've heard some people say like that they've been reluctant to do Patreon stuff because they don't want to feel beholden to those people. Like, Oh, then they're going to suggest this. And then if I don't do it, then I'm going to have to make the switch. But like, I've, I rarely get any kind of critique from people on Patreon. And like anytime I've made big changes, I'll usually like that I'm on the fence about I'll kind of like pull them like, Hey, what do you guys think about this? And the outcome almost always goes the way that I'm leaning. Like, you know, I know like people will worry about, Oh, well, if I do sponsorships, they're going to get mad Mm -hmm. because I am already getting money from them or whatever. I've never had anybody give me anything negative about doing sponsorships except for random people on Reddit and stuff like that. Those Mm -hmm. are the people who get mad that you're taking on sponsorships. The people who support you on Patreon they support you because they want to see you succeed. And if you get a sponsorship, they see like, oh, this is awesome. He's succeeding more. You know, if at, if, if at the end of the day, what they want to see is more content come out from you. And that's the reason that they're supporting you is so that it helps you make more content. They know that you getting that sponsorship helps you make more content also. So it's like, it's a win for everybody when that type of thing happens. Yeah. yeah. I, we I have just very similar experience with our patrons too. I mean, like, yeah, we get it's a super positive community. Um, we absolutely love interacting with our patrons. Brad and I actually struggle with Patreon on YouTube, but for the show itself, you know, being mm-hmm. being a little bit different type of content, uh, yeah. we've seen a massive value out there. And we, and you know, it's not that we don't focus on building community around our our content channels, but like we really made that a focus for this one uh, specifically. And we've seen an amazing an amazing community of people that are now bought into each other as well. Um, that, that's been, you know, extremely beneficial to both of us personally and professionally. Um, so, you know, hats off to you, dude, cause we know the amount of work that goes into it and how difficult it can be. Um, yeah, Thank you. yeah. But before I cut you off, Brad, I mean, you were saying, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I just looked at, uh, at your Patreon, Chris is 756 patrons. Dude, that is yeah. massive. I mean, that, that yeah, is just that I, 
that might be one of the bigger numbers in our community. And just showing like those people are, are bought into you. And we talk about the tribe mentality and of, you know, Seth Godin tribes. And that's, I mean, that's a, just such a perfect representation of that. No, I mean, that's was the most unexpected thing out of this whole endeavor in YouTube. That was the most unexpected thing. Like I said, when I started making the videos, I had resigned myself to like, okay, for the first two years or for the first year, there's going to be 200 people watching me. That didn't happen. But I feel like even at that time, if you would have told me like, no, after, you know, six months of doing this, you're going to get 30,000 subscribers. I'd be like, oh my God, that's, I would have been super excited, but I've been, I would have believed it, I guess. With Patreon, if you would have told me, you know, two years into doing it, you're going to have 750 people who've been willing to pledge a couple bucks to you each month. That would have been the most unbelievable thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that's, and it is, that's it, exactly into that tribe mentality of like the people, you don't need a ton of people, even though you do have, yeah. you have, and, and it's, it's kind of interesting because when you look at your total audience, so you've got, you know, whatever, over 200,000 subscribers. And yeah. uh, so when you look at that as a percentage, it's very, very small. Yeah. it's very Right. Small, yeah. So you're, you're less than half a percent, but, um, but when you think about what's going on and the value of a, so, you know, the, the value in a subscriber on YouTube, right? There's not a whole lot of intrinsic value in a single subscriber on YouTube, right? right. And because the the CPMs and all that, right? You know, we make like three to five dollars per thousand views, right? right? So when you think about any individual person watching one of your video or even all of your videos, if they watch fifty videos, it's it's not much value. But when when you've given them this other avenue of Patreon to say, uh, hey, you can you can support what I do, and I think there's also a, a much more uh, direct tie when with somebody in the side hustle because they see you trying to break in. You're not doing it full time. You're not like this business. You're like this person right. that people can relate with. You're you've got two kids. You know you're working a full time job. You're trying to hustle. They, and they see how much hard work. And then piled on top of that, obviously, is this just amazing content. And I think it's easy for people to buy into uh, and and that you know just buy into you as your as your brand because you know, you're, you're likable and you're just, you're adding value. You're just making people smile. You know, I think that's a big, like you're entertaining them. You're making them smile. You're making them feel good. And the other part mm -hmm. about the sponsorship that I really love what you do, like when I watch your videos, Chris, I'm always like, like you, the way that you do sponsored is unlike the way anybody else does sponsored videos. You don't, you know, you, you pump them up in the sense that mm -hmm. you talk about their product and why it's good but you almost always take this like backhanded shot at them or their product about like to make it funny. <laughs> like not yeah, necessarily like that you're kind of segue. Into yeah. Like not that you're putting them down, but you're just like, you, you just make it really funny about that. It's, it's not this salesy shill. It's just like, yeah, because you know, because shaving is clearly what makes you a man. And that's why yeah. you need a dollar <laughs> shave club. It's like you do the, these things. And I think that it's almost like people look forward. Like I look forward to be like, like, I want to see what you're going to say about the sponsor almost as much as I want to see about the video because I'm like, all right, he's, he's going to have some like off the wall thing about how he works this sponsorship into the, into the video. Yeah. I mean, I think that comes from first off, you know, since I write it out before, it's hard for me, like pretty much anytime I put pen to paper, it really quickly starts to slant towards comedy. Like that's just where I naturally go. But further than that, I mean, you think about the way that people watch YouTube videos, or at least the way that I think about it is like, there's always an opportunity to click away to the next thing. So like, how do you find a way to interject a little bit of entertainment 
into each little 30 second capsule or, you know, however you want to think about it, just like any opportunity there is to not let people click away from it, put those in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think interjecting some humor into the read is beneficial for me because it'll hopefully keep people watching. And I think it's beneficial to the brand too, because people will pay attention to it a little bit more. Yeah. And you, you, you do it masterfully. So, oh yeah, well, well done on that. It's always, always love hearing those reads. (laughs) Uh, so, so going in, you know, kind of, kind of starting to wrap up here, we're kind of on, on an hour, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what have been the takeaways from the community? Like what, what, what have you learned from your patron crowd or, or building that tribe? Like are there any things that you've learned along the way that have resonated to help you build more? Or is it, has, has it just been totally organic or have you specifically done things to help build that tribe and help build that? I mean, I guess, you know, thanking them in your videos is a great example, but are there other things that you've seen that have really resonated well with that crowd? Yeah, I think, I mean, most of it's happened kind of naturally. I would say the, the big thing is just consistently talking about it. So whether it's the thing that, you know, it usually takes the form of thanking people in the end of the video. But I think the more you're willing to talk about it, the better it's going to do. I think a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll be like, okay, I'm going to start this campaign and they'll talk about it in two videos and then that's it. But if you talk about it in every video, that's just like so many more opportunities for people to see it and to know that it's a big part of, you know, your business model and what you're doing. So it's just more opportunity for them to jump on and support you. I, I I think that, you know, if it weren't for Patreon, I certainly would still be doing this, but it definitely has made it a lot more motivating and, and uh, sustainable and realistic for me to do it. Um, I have done other things that were like a little more, uh, I guess, strategic. You could say like, you know, I made the field notes, booklets, t-shirts, that kind of stuff that I don't sell any of that stuff. It's all exclusive as gifts to patrons, which I think helped to see an uptick in in getting people on board. But I don't think that that's the reason that they're coming on board. I think it's more because they like the videos and, and they just want to support. And in fact, I have a number of people that, you know, I'll, when they sign up, I'll send them an email to reach out and be like, hey, thanks for signing up. I want to send you a t-shirt, what size you wear. And then I'll have people tell me like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to send me a t-shirt. So that just like solidifies the fact that they're not doing it for the gifts. I don't think anybody's doing it for the gifts. They're doing it because they want to support you. But sometimes those little like extra things can be like, oh, cool. And it might push them over the edge or whatever. Right. Yeah. We see that with our, our MFP tribe on Patreon too. You know, we get a lot of uh, awesome feedback from our follow-up emails to, to new people uh, in the same context. It's like, no, nah, we just want to support you guys. We love what you're doing. Um, and I think that that's, what's really cool about the, sort of crowdfunding or concept of Patreon. Um, you know, I think we touched on it last week. Um, what do you think about the new YouTube um, integration of the sponsor sponsor? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I think just totally looking from the outside, it's good. I mean, if it helps give creators more money, it's good. The only fear, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but you know, who knows what's going to happen is if like it caused them to, squash down on people being able to promote Patreon or something like that, then I would see it as a negative. But if it's just another avenue for creators to be able to do more, then I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Would would you you ever, would you ever, uh, Oh, would I do it? Supplement that or because it it is almost at, at, at ends. I've seen other creators saying like, Hey, I'm shutting down my Patreon and I'm going down to support, you know, to, to YouTube sponsor. 
I don't want to say never, but right now I would say I probably would not. I think it would just having like two of kind of the same community in two different spots just seems like a lot of administration in a way. Right, so right. Just out of laziness, it doesn't seem like it would make sense for somebody like me to do it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're in true Costanza form. I like that. That's right. Yeah. I don't want my worlds to collide. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, but it is cool because I think there's and I think YouTube sees that and, you know, having having a tribe going. So, you know, getting to what we'd like to end our, our interviews with, though, Chris, is getting some advice. So if you're going <laughs> to give some advice to people just starting out or to yourself as as you are starting out across business, YouTube, you know, whatever, what what are those things or what's one thing that you would really wish you had known or wish people would know when they start out? Uh, I think the thing to that I would want to just make sure that I kept reminding myself of was so like even what we were just talking about with Patreon, like all that information, it's good to know. And like all the information that you guys put out on your podcast, it's all stuff that's valuable to know, but to never let that replace the idea of just making good content. Like that's always going to be at the core of everything you're doing is making sure that you're making that good content that people want to watch that you're happy about, that's sustainable for you to do, that's hopefully something unique that you can bring to it that other people can't, that should be like, you know, 80% of your focus. And then once you have that going, all that extra information that you're soaking up here or that you just soaked up about Patreon, that's going to help you to like make the most out of whatever it is you're building, the audience that you're building. But I think that people can have a tendency to get like so into the nuts and the bolts of like, oh, I got to do this thing. I got to do this thing when you don't even have the content there yet. So make sure that you always keep that as the focus. Like there has to be that hub there for everything else to build off of. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, it can become extremely overbearing seeing how much different information there is out there as well as how many different things to execute upon just to get started. Um, So so Mm a great tip there. Um, I really dig it. I, man, I can't tell you enough how, how awesome it has been to have you on the show, dude. I mean, like, thank we've, you. We've, we've, we've hit the trifecta now, Brad. We've had the entire I know. Modern we've Maker got, podcast. We've, we've had the Modern Maker podcast, the, the rap, where we're going to have to start cycling. We have to have Ben back. Oh, wait, yeah, we'll have to have, like, yeah. I Actually, I don't know. That would probably just be completely unruly, but I think we should just have, like, a, a five-person five yeah, five person podcast. We, we can do it. Rumble. We should just call Absolutely. Ben right now. On FaceTime, yeah. see if we can yeah. get him. <laughs> just get him, right him and Mike, him. him and Mike are right there. So yeah, we could we could tie him in. <laughs> let's do throw it. Jesse in for free. Uh, <laughs> Maybe next time we're all live. Let's do one when we're all live next time because that'll be a lot more manageable. Oh, yeah, we should. Man, that would be awesome. But yeah, dude, great having microphone. you on. Yeah, one, yeah. one one microphone. Pass it around. We'd have to just oh. we'd have to just push Mike away. Like Mike, you're five <laughs> feet back from everybody else. <laughs> Yelling. <laughs> Yeah, man. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Chris. Uh, we really appreciate it, dude. And we'll have links down uh, to all to all of his stuff uh, down below to Four Eyes, as well as uh, we'll have a link direct to your Patreon, man. Yeah. We're pushing you over there. You should, right. you should go support the man, the myth, and the legend. But uh, I love it. John? Dude, this has been awesome, man. I just can't, can't say thank you enough, dude. It's been a blast. Gotcha. All appreciate right. Appreciate it. It's great being here. All right, Chris. Talk to you later, buddy. Ah, yes. The days of the side hustle, man. I totally empathize with Chris and it just blows me away with how much he gets done with still having that full time job. Just great stuff.
750 patrons is ridiculous. <laughs> the dude's effort in adding value is absolutely incredible, and it was awesome to hear how he's grown such a loyal following tribe. I know, man. That, that, that is really fun to watch how good he's doing. But guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this show and this interview. Make sure you check out the show notes at madeforprofit.com forward slash episode 49. We'll have links to Chris's YouTube channel, his Patreon channel, as well as the Modern Maker podcast. And make sure you're following us on Instagram at Made for Profit to keep up with what we're doing on the daily. We're dropping questions, knowledge, engaging with the tribe, and you can see what's coming up next if we're doing meetups, giveaways, anything like that. Absolutely, man. So why don't we go ahead and hit the after show? Let's do it. Let's do it.